0: Hello and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips.
1: I'm Victoria Hillman.
0: And we have with us Stephen Elaine. So we've got Steve with us today. Steve is a herpetologist. Your, your background's in all sorts of things: great chris, newts, midwife toads, snake fungal disease, not viral disease, as I keep calling it. Well, welcome to the show, first of all, Steve. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Uh, I think we'll start with the podcast news. OK, let's have a look. Do do you want to start with the social media stats, Vic?
1: Yeah. So we've got on our Facebook page, we've got 274 likes and uh, 283 followers. And on Twitter, we're up to 172 followers and a lot of interaction, certainly on Twitter. Um, last couple of weeks, so thank you so much to everybody, and lots of really lovely, positive comments about our last episode, which was about the wildlife photography. So, thank you again, and keep the questions and comments and everything coming in. We do read them and try and respond to as many as we can.
0: Did I had a couple of follow up questions on Twitter and Facebook, which we were able to answer, which was nice. Downloads still going well, up to two thousand seven hundred. That's pretty good. I can't remember we were over two thousand last time. Numbers racking up, so thanks everyone for downloading, sharing the podcast hopefully we have a few more next month as well
1: a couple of questions as well one on uh ring flash which through our facebook page which i actually answered so hopefully that's helped out and yeah just lots of really positive feedback about the wildlife photography episode everyone seemed to really enjoy it and lots of tips picked up from it so
0: we shall move on to the news i'll start with a bit of good news cool links or coal links i can never never i heard it pronounced both ways apologies to the the wrong one there uh, in scotland some of you might remember the infamous trump golf course in scotland where there was an sssi and it got so bad uh that i think it was last year before they actually removed the sssi status because they destroyed it when they built a golf course it's really uh, rare sand dune habitat in scotland and a similar thing was threatened to happen a totally different billionaire this time trying to take over a big chunk of scotland turn it into a golf course but because the trump golf course never delivered on the jobs and various other things and environmental damage was seen as too severe they've actually blocked planning permission for it hopefully that's the end of it and a lot of people are now campaigning to try and get it given a more protected status so, but not the SSSIS guarantee but uh yeah so a bit of good news well done to bug life and all the bodies up in scotland involved in campaigning to get that stopped because that was a, a good bit of work there not so good news on HS2, of course. Uh, that's been approved now. I'm sure you've seen on the news. And lots of environmental damage to come from that. That's a bit of a doubt on that one. I uh, believe you've got a story on beavers, Vic.
1: Um, I have. It's a study that's come out. It was actually carried out by a team from University of Exeter. And quite topical, given the amount of flooding that we've got going on at the moment. And it's basically beavers cut flood risks, clean rivers and boost wildlife um which is basically what the study has has shown and they've been looking at the beavers down in in Devon on the River Otter and basically saying so that the wild beaver populations are reducing the impacts of floods cleaning the river water and boosting populations of fish amphibians and water voles and the study has been done over 5 years so that's a very good positive New story about beavers and something that I think would be definitely worth looking into going forward in various areas of the country. I think
0: we'll have to have a look at cover the causes of flooding because there's a let's just say there appears to be a strong correlation between towns that are flooding in certain areas and. Grouse moors draining blanket bogs upstream of them. And I also a... building housing yeah. estates on floodplains. Yes, there's that fantastic picture doing around at the moment, isn't there, of a piece of land with plan permission given and it's under two or three foot of water. Yeah, there's a lot of idiotic stuff like that going on. And for years, rivers have been. Canalise to try and make them hold more water and get the water down as quick as possible, but we're now realising the trick to stop flooding is to slow down the water when it's higher upstream and let it sort of come through gradually. I have I thought it was one story. It turns out it's two stories about the sparrowhawks being shot. I don't know if you guys have seen Have you two guys seen this in the news? I haven't seen it. No. No. The first story broke. I saw yesterday. A chap in Cowie in Stirlingshire, up in Scotland shot a sparrowhawk with his air rifle he's a pigeon fancier so he was trying to protect his pigeon supposedly and shot it and he was given something that would definitely stop him doing it again a 450 pound fine and i thought it was the same story until i looked closer another chap in portsmouth leant over his neighbour's fence he used a catapult to kill a sparrowhawk sitting on his racing pigeon um he got a fine of 800 pounds which is hardly a deterrent um so there's pigeon fanciers killing sparrowhawks it's not exactly a secret a lot of them hate sparrowhawks there's also some chap in colchester's always moaning about the peregrines you know these there's a pair of peregrines in colchester that always nest in the same place they're almost got celebrity status in colchester He writes to the paper every year to moan about them which is a bit depressing in terms of stats the stupidity of killing sparrowhawk is a government study found that over half of each pigeon races on average this is pigeons Go missing every year anyway, and most of them are sort of like hitting wires, windows, or just wandering off. I mean, look at your local town centre, full of pigeons. And only 14% were killed by bird of prey like peregrines and sparrowhawks. So compared to how many they lose, anyway, it's it's a tiny fraction. It just seems mad that they feel that they have to shoot or catapult things that other people enjoy. Strange, really. I don't know. I know they've got to protect their pets or whatever they want to refer to them as. But, but it is a nice, depressing new story for you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> should, should we move on to something happier? Let's yeah. move on to
0: something happier, yes. Like so. frogs and toads. Frogs and toads. <laughs> That's why we have Steve here. Now, we've got Pond Man here. That's me. We've got Frog Lady Vic. That's but cool. yet we still decided to bring bringing the super amphibian expert that is steve alan how many scientific papers you published on reptiles and amphibians now steve too many to count yeah i'm still working on my first one <laughs> in fact i'm teaming up with steve hopefully to do something next year we'll talk about that when we've done that or started it i think
2: we'll see how it goes yeah
0: yeah so steve is currently working on snake fungal disease in grass snakes did you want to talk a little bit about that first sure. or we'll so, get
2: to the so yes the snake fungal disease is an, an emerging infectious disease that uh, affects snakes hence its name <laughs> and it was first confirmed as being in europe especially here in the uk back in 2016 and i've been working on it since late 2018 and you know we're working on a population of grass snakes and trying to investigate the effects it has on their you know their health their, you know mortality as well as breeding success and so that sort of stuff the uh, disease has been known in the U.S. for quite some time, and there it appears to affect different species of snakes differently. Obviously, the U.S. has you know far more snake species than the U.K. does. We only have three native and two introduced species of snakes, and so I think there's what some, like 52 papers now published on snake fungal disease, which is also known as aphidiomycosis. And only two of those are you know looking at things from a, a European point of view. So yeah, there's a lot to learn and a lot of work to be done. I, I'm looking forward to to getting back out in the field this spring and summer to see what what data I can collect and uh, you know to to try and make sense of things. But before I did everything with snakes and with you know fungal diseases, there I did all in amphibians before for uh, a number of years. So looking at the, the amphibian chytrid fungus, so I did that. I've been working with midwife toads in the UK. So we've been studying a population in Cambridge since 2015 started disease surveillance in 2016 and you know that's been ongoing since and for my master's i was working with chytrid fungus in madagascan amphibians for my undergrad you know i was uh, studying a local population of great newts and, and seeing how their, their microhabitat preferences differed during the breeding season between the sexes because you know males and females prefer different habitats and so by understanding them you can effectively manage ponds in such a way that you increase breeding rates and therefore hopefully success in order to you know mitigate building work nearby or whatever else if you're translocating newts into a pond because uh, unfortunately ponds aren't always in the state that amphibians like them to be in uh, you know they need to be established for quite some time they need to be free of predators they need to have a certain amount of macrophyte cover and i'm sure most of you will recognize you know a good wildlife pond from a bad one to try to understand what newts liked in terms of their their pond preferences you know i hoped that i could help produce some guidance or at least advice on how to manage ponds better for newts but unfortunately it never got that far but uh, if you want to know more about newts we can cover those in detail uh, at another time but always tweet me and you know i'm always happy to answer
0: so i'm sure we'll try and squeeze a bit on newts but we're going to concentrate on the frogs and toads first tonight i think so shall we start with perhaps the most widespread but certainly most common in gardens is going to be the common frog isn't it this is rhino temporaria, yeah or temporary frog i believe it's called outside of the uk isn't it
2: it is i i know that the the dutch and the germans call it the grass frog but yeah it This is the issue with common names is that they vary between countries, but also, you know, within counties or, you know, villages, et cetera, which makes them completely useless, you know, if if you travel a bit. But, you know, they they are very widespread, arguably our most common species in the UK. And anybody who's anybody has probably seen them at some point in their life, probably in their childhood when they had tadpoles in their classroom uh, or in the garden pond. And, yeah, they are one of the species that produce the characteristic frog spawn that everybody's familiar with. Uh, at this time of year, uh, well, from this time of year going into you know early spring, it depends on a number of factors as to when and why frogs spawn.
0: Uh, they're usually the first to find the ponds, I believe, too, aren't they? Out of all the species, uh, you know, they, they, although they do have some loyalty to their breeding ponds, they tend to wander a bit as well more. Well, I think and, our,
1: and... when we when we moved into our the house that we're in now, mm. that we when we moved in, our garden was grass and decking, and that was it. It was devoid of any wildlife and i built the pond i dug the pond the first year we were in and within a couple of days of filling it with water from the the water butts went out had a look and had a little frog sitting in there and has been with us ever since so yeah they you know they're there and they will find it
2: fingers Fingers crossed crossed. i a
0: have spawn soon
1: yeah not seen mine yet No, not seen them yet
2: the important thing to note with frogs is, is that you know you are both perfectly demonstrated that they're in the environment. And there's this Mm -hmm. misconception with amphibians because they have this double life where they breed in the water, they live on land, that as soon as it comes to spring, frogs live in ponds. They do, but they spend a lot of their time in the terrestrial Mm -hmm. environment as well, which is why if you dig a pond, they'll gravitate towards it. And a lot of people often ask me why they don't find frogs in their ponds that have been established for quite some time. And unfortunately, in some places, there just aren't enough ponds in that environment particularly you know in urban centers to act as yeah. stepping stones to allow our frogs to disperse and you know find new ponds
1: i have to admit like with you saying that steve it's, it's really interesting because when we moved here to the best of our knowledge we're the only garden on the estate that actually has a pond mm. um and it, you know obviously it didn't it didn't have one for the 13 years or whatever it was built before we we moved in as far as i'm aware there aren't any other estates or there's no other ponds in the area but we've still got we've we've had four or five different frogs now that come to our garden um and they spawned last year as well
0: maybe they disperse. i don't know if we know this steve Uh, do they do they disperse further as juveniles because they don't return to the pond until they're two or three years old i believe
2: of course yeah they leave the pond uh, as a froglet disappear off into the environment for a couple of years Mm. and then return to water to breed so that they you know they can travel up to a kilometer or more Uh, You know, in that time, depending on on the conditions in the environment, obviously, you know, a semi-natural habitat is going to be more permeable to a frog than an urban one. And I think that one one of the things that aids frogs moving around and finding new habitats is, you know, connectivity of of gardens or, you know, gardens to to semi-natural wild spaces given corridors to move through. In terms of your frogs, Vic, they may have been in environment and breeding somewhere, you know, in just a hollow, you know, not exactly a pond, but somewhere where rainwater's collected long enough for tadpoles to, to metamorphose and, you know, then disperse into the environment. I'm sure yeah. you guys are aware that if you, if, you, if you fill a pond in, you know, give it a couple of years and frogs will return thinking there's going to be a pond there. Mm. Uh, because those are the ones that left the pond as a t- you know not as a uh, as a froglet a couple of years ago uh you know remember what that pond is from when they were a tadpole and they come back and they go oh no the pond's gone and then just sit there with an angry look on their face <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> they do go looking for other ponds though because my nan had a pond that only ever had toads like a nice size pond uh, you know it's good four meters by two meters at least and she always had toads and then bam one year literally sort of 30 or 40 frogs just turned up so i reckon someone locally filled in their pond and they just gravitated towards that because they can probably they smell the water they smell
2: the water yes so so the frogs can detect certain species of algae in the ponds that let them know that there's a pond there i'm not i'm sure of the ins and outs that you know there are scientific papers out there and there's information around but yeah frogs can essentially smell water that let them know that ponds are there
0: they'll avoid ponds with Fish and newts even as well, weren't they? Cumber they frogs. will,
2: they will, yes. So frogs, you know, did they, they produce thousands of offspring per uh, a clump of spawn? And so that's a great food source for newts. to smooth, palmate and great crested newts are all voracious predators of frog spawn uh, and tadpoles. And fish exactly the same. If you find amphibians in a fish pond, they're most likely going to be toads, for the reason that you know toads are toxic, their spawn's toxic, their tadpoles are toxic. And no, so it it affords it some level of protection Hmm. uh, to predators. But obviously, if you've only got one, you know, string of toad spawn and thousands of fish in a pond, uh, it's still going to disappear because not all of those fish are going to encounter and experience to learn that eat that toad tadpole is a bad idea.
1: So, So we've got like with the with my parents' ponds that I've been working on for the last few years, the main pond that we've had since. Yeah, I grew up there so since I was a child. We do have fish in it, but the fish are only in one end of it. They can't actually physically get into mm-hmm. the other end of the pond. Okay. So the frogs and toads breed in that other end of the pond, as do the newts and a lot of them. But we have frogs, toads and newts all in that smaller end of the pond, which is, you know, much better for wildlife and then we've got the big fish which are in the other side of the pond, but they can't get into the end where the frogs and toads are so it kind of we've managed to kind of find a balance that works we have since put in another set another pond a second one which doesn't have fish in it and that is going to be more kind of a wildlife but I mean we didn't in our pond we didn't have for years and years and years we I don't think we ever had toads spawning in it and then a couple of years ago they spawned in it and checking on it today they've actually spawned in it again this year which is great and there was a little toad sitting in there
0: so the tadpoles, talking of um, fish and newts eating them, it's important to note uh, from a freshwater ecology perspective, the tadpoles are extremely important for so many creatures. I mean, dragonfly nymphs, diving beetle larvae. I don't think it's a coincidence. A lot of the Ditiscus, the great diving beetles, their young, appear in spring when the pond is full of tadpoles. I don't think it's a coincidence they're in there and they, they hoover them up. Well they hoover them up, they actually stab them with their fangs and suck them dry. There's a lovely thought
2: for you, Vic. Nice. Um <laughs> anything that's predatory is going to be eating them basically. I know uh, oh, it's, it's the reason why frogs play the numbers game, you know. Yeah. Only two of them need to make it to adulthood for that population to remain stable, yet they produce thousands of young. You know, they don't have any level of parental care, you know, they just spawn, disperse into the environment and let the you know, the tadpoles fend for themselves. So you know, there's high levels of predation, you know, are important, as you say, for the you know, the foundation and the rest of the ecosystem. Going back to what you were saying, Vic, toads rarely spawn in, in garden ponds in my experience, not just because uh, of the potential for fish predators, although you know that doesn't seem to bother them too much, but it's the the complexity of the aquatic vegetation. So there are sites that I've surveyed where I've seen toads in amplexus in, in a breeding embrace, I've seen tame tadpoles, but I've never seen their spawn. And the reason being is they like to hide it amongst aquatic vegetation. I imagine it's something to do with the fact it comes out as a string as opposed to a clump. So the female needs some way to anchor it to be able to help it be laid as opposed to the clump that, you know, you can just push out and just leave there to float away once it's absorbed uh, the water and stuff. So yeah, the toad, toad spawn tends to be somewhat more concealed than frog spawn. You know, if you have a frog spawn on the pond, mm-hmm. it's quite obvious it's there. Toad spawn, not so much. Yeah, I, I think with this
1: one, because like a couple of years ago, we just, so we went about five years without having any didn't even see you know see a frog no frog spawn or anything so i said right just need to overhaul the pond put some more vegetation in it that smaller end is now really for wildlife that's has been done there's a lot more vegetation in it like checking today there's an awful lot of toad born and it is it's just wrapped around all the vegetation in there so i don't know maybe i've just got the magic touch and they like my ponds
0: and of course they're long-lived toads aren't they so even if they only have spawned successful once in their 20, 25 years they'll. Is it 25 years, I believe, Steve? Something yeah, they, like they, that.
2: they can live a long time, yeah. yeah. Uh, it may even be more. I'm not sure off the top of my head, but yeah. they. they, they mm. you, this is the one thing that people mm. are always astonished that reptiles and amphibians can live for yeah. quite some time. As far as we're aware, the longest great crescent you, in the wild was about 20 years old. And yeah, you know, for frogs and toads, they can easily do that, plus some more. Reptiles, it's even more than that. But yeah, no, they, they're very long-lived. And as long as you know they're able to navigate all of the challenges that life throws at them, they should be able to you know survive for quite uh, you know to quite a ripe old age and hopefully breed a few a few times during their lifetime uh, to keep their species going.
0: Yes, yeah, so, so staying with toads, uh, I suppose we should talk about the differences between the two. I mean, the, the basic one I'm is sure. frogs have a smooth skin, does not it, and toads have a. a a knobbly skin we won't get into the whole are toads and frogs really separate groups because once you get out of britain it kind of falls apart the whole difference from frog or toad it it does
2: i think the easiest ways to tell frogs and toads apart in the uk if you look at them face on frogs tend to have a uh, they look like they're wearing a mask around their eyes so they've got those dark patches behind their eyes that go down to the eardrums uh, that form almost triangles toads don't have that toads that you know the pupil uh, is black that's surrounded by almost a copper-colored disc and then they also have uh, their, their poison glands, the parotoid glands, on the back of their head, sort of where the neck region is. Frogs are all sorts of colors. That, you know, this time of year, females can be bright red. Males tend to be an olive green color, you know, maybe brown, whereas toads are generally a light brown color, but they can change in response to temperature and all sorts of uh, other stimuli. So, You know, those are sort of visual differences. Also, when it comes to finding one on the land, you know, frogs hop, toads tend to crawl. So, yeah, there's a number of ways of telling them apart and a number of people often get them confused, which is, you know, if you don't see enough of them to be able to distinguish them side by side you know completely understand it once you know what you're doing you know you, you never make that mistake again it's like riding a bicycle
0: yeah once you get your eye in now quite easy just to sort of reiterate what we've kind of said already so common frogs are a species of ponds smaller ponds fishery ponds and, and temporary water bodies to some degree as long as they last till june july time and toads you tend to find in the bigger ponds with fish and even lake so well perhaps maybe we talk about courtship you can hear frogs making that noise that the males make a noise that's best described as like a motorbike in the distance, as one description I heard, <laughs> and, and that's a call to the
2: females, I believe, isn't it? So I often play the calls of, of frogs and toads to people, and mm. they often get them the wrong way round. You know, people think that that frogs have this, you know, this high-pitched squeal, and, and toads are more guttural, yeah. but it, it's actually the other way round. And so yes, males are calling to females, but they're also sizing each other up sort of like how you yeah. know bird song is a very similar thing you know establishing territories males are sizing each other up and females are listening out for you but that that one note or you know that the bit of tune that indicates that the male that's making it is the best one for her to mate with and so most frog species call to you know attract a mate it, it seems to work some of the examples that i think at top of my head where they don't is where you know in the tropics where they live uh, around waterfalls so like torrent frogs you know foot flag waving frogs where because mm. the background noise is so loud, you know, if they were to call, they wouldn't be heard. So they, you know, have other modes of communication, such yeah, as waving it. with their feet or, you know, nodding and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, they you know, they call uh, around the ponds, you know, around this time of year, uh, maybe give it another couple of weeks when it gets a bit warmer. If you go down to a pond, even in the day, you know, if, if there's enough frogs there, you'll be able to hear them calling. Toads mm. tend to call more at night. This is the thing, when it comes to courtship, in in toads especially, they have a number of basic rules that, you know, identify as females. And those are, is it in or near a pond? Is it silent? And is it moving? And if it, you know, if all three of those are ticked, it must be a female toad. So toads can often think that frogs are are their own species or uh, I've seen them grappled onto Great Crested Newt and Newton. they've had to free the newt because he's got, you know, a toad uh, riding it. I've seen pictures online of of toads attached to American bullfrogs. I've seen them attached to goldfish. There, mm. There's uh, a site, i to just outside of Cambridge, that's a crematorium and, you know, sometimes you find toads you know attached to all sorts of, you know, litter that's been left behind, like plastic bottles or mm. uh, plastic flowers that have blown in the wind and landed it in in the pond. Yeah, they, they aren't the cleverest of animals, but, you know, the system clearly works. toads if another male grabs a male, they'll make a high-pitched squeal to let that male know that, sorry, mate, you know, I, I, I'm a bloke, let go. And so yeah, they, they sometimes uh, make
0: that when you when we pick them up, don't they, as well, that you hear that squeak. Of course,
2: yeah. So if you've ever picked up toads, part of a toad patrol, to prevent them from being hit by cars or, you know, to help them get through obstacles, because unfortunately, you know, humans are great at, you know, dividing habitat and fragmenting ponds and uh, wildlife from it. You pick them up and they start to to make this high pitched squirrel because they you know, they think that you're a male that's you know, mm. to trying to mate with them essentially, you know, which is quite funny at times. Frogs they do a similar thing, but it's not to the same degree as toads. I think that, you know, their system for finding a mate is more based on their call, whereas toads will jump onto females on her way to the pond as opposed to frogs where they wait till they're there.
0: because yeah, I was reading the other day that toads don't call like frogs, really. Like
2: I say, it's more just that high-pitched squeak, oi, get off me. And, it, uh, it is, and and yeah. you, you can go down to, you know, some ponds at night and hear toads calling, but it tends to be a solitary male or two yeah. that, you know, hasn't managed to partner up with a female on oh, the way so to I the do. pond or, you know, in that immediate area before, you know, everything kicks off.
0: Mm. Yeah, because you talk about them gripping things. I remember reading as a kid and I have seen a couple of pictures on Twitter of them where, unfortunately, they've grabbed a coy carp by the gills around the head and they've actually suffocated this koi carp much to the annoyance of the owners so we, we've actually, actually
1: get... had to remove yeah. toads from the koi carp in the pond before both yeah. survived we managed yeah. to get them early enough but yeah we've had to try and remove them from the gills where they're hooked
2: on if you've ever picked up a toad and you know it's latched onto you thinking you're a female yeah. those little guys are determined and they're hard to get off but yeah, yeah you, <laughs> you can you can see that the grip obviously works and it happens with frogs sometimes, but mostly in toads that you, you have these these mating balls where, you know, you have this one toad that's in amplexus with a female and all, all these other males will bundle on her and they'll try to fertilize her eggs. The reason for this is that with frogs and toads, the males tend to breed every year. The metabolic investments that produce a couple of drops of sperm it is nothing. Mm-hmm. In comparison to the metabolic investment is to produce eggs. And so as you said, Neil, if a frog or a toad breeds successfully once in its lifetime, you know, that's great. Maybe it can get you know another shot later on down the line if it lives long enough. But yeah, that investment means that there are cycles of toad and frog breeding activity at different sites. So at some of the sites I wanna tell where we have like a seven year long data set, you can see this where for the first year there was quite a low count in frogs and toads, and then it reaches a peak about three years later. Drops again, and it's now you know back on the way up again. When people say that the frogs and the toads have disappeared from their area, I'm skeptical sometimes because it may just be an artifact of that fluctuation of populations and breeding. Yeah, or you know, it may be because of more landscape, larger scale sort of things that are going on are disrupting uh, the breeding cycle or the activities such as roads and all sorts of bits and pieces. So you sometimes have to take this with a pinch of salt and evaluate what's going on to fully understand what's going on with frogs and toads
1: is so it the, the pond one of the ponds that i survey is it's a really big pond actually it's it's a massive one and you go like some years i've seen six seven mating balls of toads it's, it's, a, it's a toad breeding pond and you see them you I, you know some i've had there's been one female with 13 males on her she was actually dead by the time i got there but they didn't give up um, there were certainly determined little toads they weren't giving up even though she was clearly dead and had been dead a while um, and then you know you go back the next year and it's all pairs and there's no mating balls so like you said there's such mm. a big fluctuation you just you need to see the patterns but you need a a good data set to be able to see the patterns oh no no and,
2: definitely
0: yeah. yeah so those not from with a mating ball it's basically what happens is a uh, one female gets the attention of one male and then another and then another and they all sort of bundle round her And and quite often she ends up not being able to get to the surface and drowns and so do some of the males in the middle and it's all rather unfortunate.
1: I I have a video so I'll post the video onto our Twitter and Facebook page so people can have a look and see what it's like. And it's got the noises, actually, that the males are making as well. So you can hear the noises in
0: the ball. one. I'm on a mission this year to film the sound of frogs and toads mating this year. I've got a couple of tip-offs. We shall see what happens.
1: Uh, You need to come down here, Neil, and I can take you to the perfect place.
0: If only I could get that far. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should talk about the other native native aneuron. There's there's
2: two other native uh, aneurons. Oh, of course, yes. So we'll, we'll leave the pull frog out just because at the moment there's only uh, two sites in Norfolk and yeah. you're unlikely to see it. The other native neuron is the Natujac toad, which, again, very range restricted, likes sandy dune systems. So there's a few populations on the Sefton coast in North Wales, or on the Norfolk coast, some down south as well, because they also like sandy heathland as well. There's been a population that was reintroduced into sandy in Bedfordshire. You know, there's historic records of them all across the UK, you know, so that there's records of them from central Cambridge, from the Essex coast, Kent. Basically, if there's coastline, if, there's, if, there, if there was heathland there, if there was sand there, there, there was nato toads. But unfortunately, we've come along and developed them into golf courses or holiday resorts. And in, in the process, stopped those processes that maintain the dune system and the health of the ponds there for nato toads to breeding. And yeah, have, have caused them to decline uh, as a result common toads don't tend to like the same habitats just because netterjacks laid their eggs in extremely ephemeral sandy pools that dry out very quickly and the tadpoles only have, you know, a couple of weeks to metamorphose uh, and get out of dodge before it completely dries up.
0: Yeah, I have read a, a really good article on it And my understanding was that before we fully understood how their ecology works, we kept noticing that most years the Natterjack toad ponds dried out. So they dug them out deeper to make sure they bred successfully every year. And it was colonised by common toads then because they could live in it. And it turns out, is is it something like once every five years Natterjacks need successful?
2: Yes, yes. So this was work that was done by, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Trevor Beebe. And yes, so I think at the time there was only like a five-year data set or something. It, was, it, was, I think it, was, it might have been eight years. It was only small. So there were these number of desiccation events, which then meant all the tadpoles and the metamorphs passed away when the pond dried out. And so, as you say, you know, people dug them larger and deeper in an attempt to try to prevent them drying out as quickly. And in the end, they unfortunately made them just a little bit bigger that common toads could successfully colonize them and, you know, accidentally pushed the Natterjacks out. And, yeah, with a much larger data set, you know, we've been able to see that, yes, natural have these catastrophic desiccation events, but as long as they don't happen too frequently, they're able to to at least remain stable.
0: Yes, they rely on basically one year every few years being really good, and it just keeps them... That's actually evolved to cope with in the dune
2: system, isn't it? Because that's what happens, <laughs> I guess. Uh, they're famous for running as well, aren't they? They are, yes. And so I've, I've seen natterjacks once uh, at the, the the reintroduction site in in Sandy. And when we went in late April, unfortunately we, we were too late to to catch the breeding. You know, we we still saw some toads, and we only saw two two male natterjacks. And they're were, they were pretty sure there was only a couple in that area anyway, because most of them have moved off but they make one hell of a noise for a small little toad. They're probably the loudest amphibian we have in the UK, bar marsh frogs. It's crazy to think that we were at this pond. It had been identified by the rangers that were natterjack toads earlier in the day. We were sitting there with our torches off in the dark, waiting for them to call. We were probably there for about half an hour or so. We'd lost our, uh, our motivation. It was getting cold. So, you know, we started to head back to the car park. And then about halfway back, the males started calling so we rushed back to the pond the chorus, We were to chorus we was expecting you know a dozen or so toads and then once we got back to the pond there was just these two males there just going at <laughs> it facing each other off it, it, it was an experience that i'll never forget but they surprised me for sure
0: a oh, cool, things they've got that lovely yellow stripe down their back which is the distinctive feature i guess a bit smaller but i, I just love the fact that the tadpoles I think, certainly once they've got their rear legs, and possibly just before, they have their yellow stripe forms before they even turn into frogs, which I think is rather nice. Um, it like do... I'd love to photograph
2: one day. And each one's stripe is unique and can be used yeah. to recognise individuals, you know, through space and time, because yeah. they're not always straight. Some of them are a little bit zigzaggy in, in, like you know, in different places. And yeah, if you can get a dorsal photo of a Nataljack toad, you know, you can do... Uh, recapture studies and you know as long as you recapture that same individual at some point in the time you'll be able to say oh yeah look we'll be called bob again (laughs) whoever
0: i think maybe we'll we better cover your specialist subject as it
2: were the alien toad the the, Um, the midwife toad yes so yes good old midwife toads so as i mentioned earlier started out studying a population in cambridge in 2015 we we were searching for them for two three years and followed all sorts of leads so they're near in the area where they are there's an old midwife training facility where people also used to go and give birth etc and we thought okay maybe this is the place that these (laughs) these toads are at because for a long time before you know the 70s before clear blue came along with, with the lateral flow pregnancy tests african clawed frogs were used as a as a pregnancy test and so in 1926 two british guys realized that if you take the urine of a pregnant woman and inject it into a female clawed frog, if that frog ovulates within 24 hours, the woman is pregnant. The, the, the reason being is that the, the frogs use the same hormones that we use and stimulates ovulation. So they were shipped all around the world, uh, spreading disease and all sorts of other bits and pieces along the way. And we thought maybe that these midwife toads that we'd heard about were actually these you know, in a pond on the site of this now old people's home. So we contacted them, and unfortunately, there there wasn't a pond on the site, and there never was. So, you know, that ruled that situation out. So then we looked at the area on a map where we thought they were, counted up all the houses, and did a massive mail drop, and got some responses for some people. And, you know, that's how the study started. And since then, we've had a, you know, a growing community engagement uh, with with the residents of Cambridge. You know, some of them have young kids. They've got involved, they've, you know, brought their... Their friends home from school to come see the toads, see so they've done show and tell at school, uh, or whatever else with the project. Everybody's happy to let a couple of nutters in the back garden for a few hours every now and again when the <laughs> weather's nice. Well, you know, which, which I think is great. But they also keep us well fed with copious amounts of tea, biscuits, and coffee, and cake, and whatever else that they which, can. Which is which is go, really. Oh yeah, of course this. It it's not for the midwife <laughs> toads. It's it's for the it's for the free tea and biscuits.
0: Yeah, you're a student. You know, you know how to get your free tea and biscuits.
2: <laughs> exactly. But they make us work for it because the toads aren't are easiest to find. So me and my colleague Mark Goodman we developed a, a way to 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 find them, which has now been downloaded from ResearchGate over a thousand times, or at least red. And, and yeah, essentially, they like to hide in small crux and crevices. As a toad, they're only the size of a 50 pence piece. They're quite small. And the males make this high-pitched beeping sound to attract a mate as well as to, you know, size each other up, you know, claim territories, all that sort of stuff. And like with anything, you get near it and they go stum. So we got a recording of one using a Frog Life Dragon Finder app and would play it when we were near where we thought the toad was. And obviously... The toad trying to get it on with a female, trying to court her, would call back trying to tell this male to go shove it and would reveal where he was. So our capture rate went through the roof roof after we, we discovered that. The bad thing is, is that only works for males. Females don't call. They tend to be quite cryptic. Midwife toads get their name because the males carry their eggs around, which is quite weird for you know an amphibian. They tend to lay them in water or, you know, at least somewhere damp. So yeah, so they breed terrestrially, you know, they lived their whole life terrestrially apart from the point where, you know, when they're a tadpole. Mm. And so they tend to breed about May time up until August. And the male will take the eggs and go sit somewhere that's damp, dark and warm and incubate the eggs as it were for two to six weeks, depending on, on the weather and, you know, the, the environmental conditions. And then yeah. when those eggs are ready to hatch, he will find a pond or a body of water, deposit the eggs, and then the tadpoles will hatch out and go swim away. How does he carry the eggs around? So the, the eggs are laid on. The, the best way to explain it is that the eggs are laid on this elastic band, and basically, when the female lays the eggs, he fertilises them and then wraps them around his own legs. And I've heard it best described as trying to put on your trousers without using your hands. Uh, <laughs> and you know, when you see the when you see the transfer of eggs, uh, I haven't mm. seen it myself, but there's plenty of videos on YouTube. It looks just like that. So he'll go off and incubate those. When looking for males underneath paving slabs or plant pots or whatever else in these people's gardens those are the areas that he's guarding because he knows they're going to be good for taking care of his eggs there a because it's damp dark and warm but b there's no predators there and there's probably food nearby as well we've done lots of work with the, the cambridge population so far we've found out they're disease free and we've got some samples that need to go to the lab sometime soon from a few other populations to see if they're disease free as well we expect them to be just because midwife toads on continental europe where they're native to have suffered huge declines in recent years because of disease and you know you'd expect similar declines here in the uk if disease was present and we haven't seen a decline so fingers crossed they're disease free mm-hmm. and i'm currently undertaking a project with a group of people to determine where all of the uk's midwife toad populations came from so mm-hmm. we're going out to these populations all around the uk taking some dna samples and essentially doing the same thing that Ancestry DNA or 23andMe would do, and you know, we're tracing back these lineages of toads to try and find out where they originated from, uh, way back when they were first introduced. Oh,
0: excellent stuff! So, Vic, I believe we've got a few questions for Steve to answer. And we you, have. And so there's
1: a. There's a. We've actually got three questions, so we're going to put two of them to Steve. So the first one is from John Campbell on Facebook. And he's actually asked, what effect does gritting have at this time of year on our amphibians?
2: Okay, so although gritting is seen as a mandatory exercise to try to prevent roads icing up and therefore crashes, and God knows what else happened when motorists are trying to get home from work or take the kids to school or whatever, it can have disastrous effects on our amphibians. So their skin is very permeable. You know, they, they use it to breathe, they use it to uptake water, to uptake ions, you know, all these sorts of bits and pieces. And therefore if you add salt to the environment for, you know, for a freshwater animal, it can have disastrous effects. There are studies that show when toads come into contact with salt on a road, they'll turn around and avoid it. Uh, The reason being is that it dries out their skin and they need their skin to be moist, to be able to breathe, to uh, function, you know, it's their most important organ. And so by impeding its ability to do its job, you're threatening the life of the animal. Toads tend to be quite hardy, frogs are a bit more sensitive and, you know, newts as well, they're highly susceptible. So that's why you don't find any aquatic amphibians that live in in marine environments is because they'd simply just dry out due to osmosis. Some species have some level of ability to be hardy against brackish water, but most of them tend to avoid it at all costs just because to them it's a death sentence.
1: Cool. Thank you very much. And it should actually probably say like a lot of the gritting that takes place certainly in this country is all done with rock salt, which is why Steve was mentioning about the salt side of things it is actually rock salt that they they tend to put and there was actually i did actually i found a couple of things where there's uh, somebody in wales where they've had a big problem with this and they're seeing declines and he's actually suggesting that instead of gritting with rock salt that they use sawdust instead because it would be better for the amphibians because you are not putting that rock salt into the environment
2: it's also an issue for where there's tunnels under the roads to mitigate building works for wildlife etc because engine oil and rock salt tends to accumulate underneath there with the rain and so for amphibians that are passing through they'll encounter those toxins and you know uptake them in their skin and unfortunately uh, suffer the consequences whereas animals such as reptiles and mammals that are more hardy and have you know a much tougher outer skin tend to do far better with rock salt and roads it's not just the amphibians that are being affected but if that water runs off into the local environment the, the salt can affect the salinity of soils of ponds of you know all sorts of bits and pieces so lots of animals and plants can be affected lots of people use amphibians as an indicator because they're the ones that you can see this changing most visually
0: yeah i think, I think frogs are the first things to suffer under acid rain aren't they weirdly before the fish You wouldn't think it'd be that way around but apparently the frogs die first they're the canaries in the coal mine
2: yeah of course it all, again comes down to the changing of the water chemistry making it more acidic and yeah unfortunately because they're highly susceptible they are the as you say the canaries in the coal
1: mine um and then we had another one and it's not this has actually come from several different people and it was kind of okay. a discussion that was going on on Twitter and it's, you know, something that I've seen this year as well. So kind of any thoughts on why in areas that generally frogs have always spawned before toads and quite a bit before toads, like several weeks before maybe the toads have spawned. This year in particular, a lot of people are seeing that the toads are spawning now, but there's no sign of any frog spawn yet. So it's kind of flipped. It's the other way around. There seems to be quite a lot of people that are seeing that. There's a lot of people that have have said, yeah, we've, we've seen, you know, the toads are spawning now and normally our frogs would be spawning about now and then the toads wouldn't be spawning until later. And I know checking one of my ponds today, we have toad spawn in it, but no frog spawn. And normally the toads around here would normally be spawning in about a month's time so you know they're about a month earlier than they have been normally in
2: i think there's a number of reasons that are contributing to this one is the fact that we've had a wet mild winter you know which has potentially thrown off the amphibians slightly two is that they don't have calendars or watches so they can't tell what the date is or what the time is and so to be able to To queue up their their time to breed, they use environmental cues such as day length and temperature and all those sorts of bits and pieces. And toads, more so than frogs, are highly reliant on the lunar phase as well to synchronise their breeding. So I think one of the reasons why we're seeing toads breeding before frogs this year is these combination of factors of a mild winter, appropriate weather and the lunar phase all being ideal for toads to breed so much so that although it's slightly early they think it's the right time to come out and so to them it could be the end of march as we all know it's only the end of february but again to them they don't know any
1: better it is really interesting you know seeing a lot of Obviously, there's a lot of reports interestingly there was an awful lot of reports of frog spawn that came in after the weekend where storm dennis hit and you know i know the frogs started appearing in one of the ponds that i i keep an eye on they were there over the weekend storm dennis but didn't spawn and then that week after storm dennis there was a lot of records suddenly start appearing where people said we've got frog spawn so they've obviously picked a what we thought was a horrific weekend of weather and for a lot of people it has been to be fair obviously a very good weekend for the frogs
2: <laughs> <laughs> no so they? some of them got caught out a couple of years ago when we had the beast from the east so we yeah we had that nice mild warm weather and everything got really cold very quickly and so Everything came out to breed, you know, reptiles and amphibians alike. And then it got very cold, ponds froze over, and, you know, a lot of animals died. And so that year was a, a bumper year for what is known as winter kill, which is where, because ponds are fully frozen over, they deoxygenate quickly, and, you know, the animals inside suffocate, essentially. And so I was at one of the residents in Cambridge, in their garden, one of the people who, we monitor her pond for midwife toads. And, you know, she called me up, and I went around there and helped her clean the pond out. And, you yeah, know, she's only got a very small pond. We took out about 35 dead frogs and it, it was just a dead frog soup. And mm. during the process, I may have screamed like a little girl embarrassingly because it turns out that one of these frogs wasn't dead at all and was just chilling with his dead mate. So, you know, put him in this black sack and it hopped out towards me. And yeah, that went... <laughs> Uh, the scream was let out because I thought a zombie <laughs> frog was coming to get me. I uh, will we'll mention now, because, you know, it's a nice segue, that if you do find any dead toads, frogs, newts, or, you know, any wildlife in your garden or local area, please report it through the Garden Wildlife Health Project. Uh, just Google Garden Wildlife Health. There's advice there. You can report it. And then if need be, or, you know, if it's necessary, the vet team there will request a carcass if you still have it. And hopefully that can help us keep an eye on all sorts of nasties that could be out in the wild and affecting wildlife without us even knowing it. You know, it's it's a nice... Surveillance monitoring system that uh, relies heavily on citizen scientists, particularly when they realise that things aren't going the way they should be in in the gardens with all all sorts of wildlife from amphibians to birds to mammals. So yeah, if you if you're if you're listening and something's not right, get in touch with those guys and see if they can offer any advice. Hopefully, if a new Fungal disease that infects newts or frogs or, or you know, hedgehogs or whatever reaches our shores. We'll find out about it sooner rather than later.
1: We have one last question that I actually kinda of have the answer to this because I did research into it a while ago. Um and it's actually from Alan James on Twitter. And he's actually asked who introduced the Iberian water frogs to the Avalon marshes, when and why did they choose that location? Well, it's not as simple as somebody, you know, chose time and location to actually release them there's actually no records of exists no records actually exist of when or how the frogs first arrived in Somerset Now for anyone that doesn't know the Avalon Marshes is actually um, it's quite a large area of wetland in Somerset around kind of Glastonbury street area really really important wildlife habitat for all manner of wildlife from invertebrates plants amphibians reptiles birds mammals but these frogs were actually well established by the 1990s and quite a lot of research into it water frogs a quite a popular animal to have in the pet trade apparently and it may be a result of a deliberate release. It's also possible they were inadvertently introduced as eggs or small tadpoles during the translocation of fishes between fisheries and it's certainly a possibility on the Avalon marshes as several introductions of fish did occur soon after the Avalon marshes were established and these particular Frogs are confined to the Avalon Marsh area and they haven't really dispersed that much. So, as far as I'm aware, it's the only place that has the Iberian water frog and they have been DNA tested as well. Uh, so, they do know that that's what they are. And they, I mean, if you go down there, if anyone's been down to Hamwell in particular, that's one of the places that the numbers are really high, and you hear the racket of frogs, that is the Iberian water frogs calling and they do make a massive amount of noise. So, hopefully, that's answered Alan's question for him yeah to mm. best of my knowledge they aren't anywhere else in the country i know there's a population of pool frogs not too far from me as well
0: yes yeah, so that's one of the four species we haven't covered tonight so we've got there's the xenopus toad which is a fairly aquatic one and there's the well four water frogs isn't there there's the peres frog or spanish marsh frog as it's sometimes called the marsh frog pool frog which is native but when extinct some of that have been introduced aren't native and one oh very confusing and the edible frog which even more confusingly is actually a hybrid species between the marsh frog and the pool frog and yeah that's a heart that's just a a minefield we're not going to cover when we're this late into the podcast
2: (laughs) (laughs) we'll save it for another day when it's a bit rainy outside and all all three of us are ready to talk frogs again yeah yeah we'll definitely do that again
1: but it's probably worth saying though because it's something that does i don't know if you see it quite a lot steve but i certainly i get a lot of people asking me questions or it it's something that comes up quite a lot on social media when people are looking at you know people are so desperate to have frogs and frogs spawn in the garden which is lovely and i think that's great that people want to embrace it and have them you know this wildlife in their garden but instead of just waiting for the wildlife to come they're actually People are offering frog spawn from their ponds to move around. There's a lot of a lot of people saying about moving frog spawn from one pond to another, and it, it's just not a good idea at all. Um, no, 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 of course not.
2: You can spread disease. So, ranavirus is a disease affecting our amphibians and has been forecast to only become. More prevalent in the UK with climate change and, you know, spreading spawn tadpoles and individuals between ponds is only going to make things worse. Also, because I've seen this online as well, particularly on sites like Gumtree, is people offering spawn and frogs for for money. Just a reminder, guys, it's illegal to trade any of our native reptiles and amphibians. If you see this, do report it and, yeah, just stay away. If you build it, they will come, as the, you know, the adage goes. You just have to be a little bit patient. And I know from building ponds myself, especially with conservation projects, and you, you expect the animals to be there instantly, sometimes the pond just needs to mature slightly and go through a few different phases of succession before the amphibians move in. So yeah, resist temptation and just be patient.
1: Yeah, just just let them come. I mean, when we bought, built our little pond in this garden, it didn't take long for the frogs to, to find it. We also have toads that use the pond. When we get the really hot summers, if you go out at night, The toads are sitting on the edge of the pond. We actually have a little uh, cute little blush-coloured toad that sits there. It's quite adorable little little guy, actually. But, you know, they will come, but you just have to let them do it of their own accord. Yeah, Like Steve was saying, please don't transfer spawn between sites. But it's really good to actually record it as well. So if you have got spawn in your ponds, do go on and record it and yeah, but... i've recorded mine today on the amphibian and reptile site and you can just go on and, and you just put in the recording where it is and how much you've seen but it's really good to know we we get an idea of kind of timings you know what's spawning when up and down the country so yeah if you've got spawn please do report it as well
2: and, and just a, a word of advice to people if my uh, if my rambling about amphibians have sounded like it's something that you want to get involved with Mm. You know, please do go online and find where your local amphibian and reptile group is, your local ard, and, you know, volunteer some time with them through monitoring mm. amphibians, through patrolling toad crossings, through you know, managing habitats, et cetera, and trying to do as much as we can to save local reptiles and amphibians because, unfortunately, over the past 60 years they've had a really hard, you know, had a hard time and, you know, it's going to take a monumental effort from all of us to reverse those declines and try to, to help the little guys. It doesn't help that they have an image problem as well but we can overcome that together i'm sure yeah
1: Yeah. i mean you know i get a lot of people say to me they love frogs and hate toads it's like what's you know obviously there is a difference but you know (laughs) know, what's wrong with you why don't you love toads you know but welcome them both and they're they're actually great species to have in your garden they're great natural pest controllers Mm. uh, in your garden especially if you grow your own kind of fruit and veg and stuff it's just making those little spaces for them and everyone could do a little bit in their own gardens or like you were saying help out with local tow patrols surveys conservation efforts frog life have a great list of tow patrols and actually if you go on i think both their twitter and their facebook pages they're always posting tow patrols that need more volunteers so if there's one that pops up in your area, even if you can just give one or two nights, it is an amazing, it do, it does help so much.
0: I was going to bring that up. Well done. Just to add to what both you guys have said, the ARG groups tend to be sort of county based. So there's uh, Steve's heavily involved in the Cambridge ARG. I'm heavily involved in the Essex ARG.
1: And we have RAGS, which is Reptile Amphibian Group for Somerset. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so sometimes it's yeah, it's usually the county first word, first letter of the word, and then arg or the other way. Like you said, rag. Kent is Krag, so they've done it the other way around. But it's just if you put in your county and amphibian reptiles, it should come up. We'll finish the show. Quick vote: frog or toad? What's your favourite uh, out of the two? I'm
2: gonna. I'm gonna. Although and midwife toad isn't a true toad, it sways it for me. It's a toad. It's so a team toad for you, Vic.
0: Do
1: I have to choose?
0: Yes, you do. Frog lady Vic, have to choose between your children
1: are, are we talking u k species or worldwide oh definitely u k species u k um I probably have to go for toads because of the sheer characterfulness that they display during the breeding season, you know when they're kicking each other off, and they yeah they're just great. So I think I'm gonna go
0: toad see I absolutely adore marsh frogs, but do you know what I grew up in a house where we had toads. And like you say, they always look grumpy, but in a very friendly grumpy way, like a children's Disney film character, <laughs> <It's just> a, <laughs> a grumpy character, don't they? Yeah, I'm going to go team toad as well, so it's free for free for the toads. So yeah. sorry, frogs. <laughs> we still love you. We yeah. do still love you. Do you know? Maybe we should do a poll. See, see what the the listeners prefer I, out of all these. I
1: will put it once once this podcast's gone live. I'm going to put a poll on our Twitter. Yeah, and, we're, 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 um, and I'll run see. it and you, you basically pick Team Frog or Team Toad.
0: I think it's time to wrap it up. We've been going for a while. So, Steve, would you like to us your Twitter handle? Et Where can people find you online?
2: Just Google my name and I will appear. So uh, my Twitter handle is my, well, most of my name. So it's at Steve Elaine and the same for Instagram. And yeah, so if you want to know more about what I do, what I get up to, or, or you know, got any questions, feel free to to find me on the socials and shoot me a message there. And hopefully I've infused some of you to to get more actively involved with reptile and especially amphibian conservation in your local area.
1: Yeah. And what we'll do is we'll actually put your your social media handles. We'll put them on the website and we'll put them on our the UK Wildlife Podcast social media channels as well. So people yeah, you, you can find Steve through us as well.
2: Yeah. Wonderful.
0: Really right. People that haven't found us through through the socials, as Steve put it. So UK Wildlife Podcast is search for UK Wildlife Podcast on Facebook and it should come up. On Twitter we're UK Wildlife Pod, and we're on Spotify now. I think I mentioned that in the last podcast we're up to about seventy followers on there now. If you like to listen to us, but we're not on the network you want us to be on, let me know and I'll, uh, I'll put us on there basically. But I think I've covered most of the major ones now. Do you want to do your personal ones, Vic? Yeah, so do on
1: to? I just did the social media one, so you can find yeah. me at Vicks Picks, which is V I K S P I C S. You can follow me on Frog Lady Vic as well, but that is purely frog and toad. I don't post anything that isn't frog and toad it's just that and you can also follow my ongoing project forgotten little creatures which is if you just type in forgotten little creatures it'll come up
0: i'm uk underscore wildlife and pond man uk or one word on twitter and again search for uk wildlife page or pond man page on facebook it should come up vic has some workshops if you want to go and join her on top of workshops too so yeah they're check all them
1: out. they're all now live on my website and you can actually search them through the rspb Hamwall site as well now
0: and we haven't mentioned your book in the last few as well so have a look at that as well that's quite a good book. quick bit of a uh, thick news did you want to make talk about your book sales quickly i don't know if you mentioned that in the last one
1: i am now So i've actually had a really really good year so far this year and we're only kind of mid-february i'm actually now only three books away from 500 from having sold 500 which is two-thirds Ooh, of the print run round of applause um, well so really really happy with that so thank you everyone and i've actually just posted a book to australia so thank oh, you very wow. much to the that's person in Australia that's purchased that book. It's on its way. It will arrive. <laughs> yeah,
0: so there's plenty of frog pictures in that book as well, isn't there? There so is that? a
1: lot of frogs, and actually, there, there's quite a bit about the Iberian water frogs because that's obviously my local patch. So there's actually a little bit in there about them yeah. as well.
0: And when I finally write my book, there'll be plenty about frogs and toads in it as well. <laughs> <laughs> when I finally write, well, oh, I think it's sign-off time. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Steve.
1: Uh, thank you so much. It's been really, yeah, really interesting. Time. Yeah, well, we'll definitely
0: have you back on again. Yeah. Sounds great. Uh, I shall uh, count down the days. Yeah, we have other neurons and all the newts to talk about as well. I Not to mention the reptiles. Well.
1: <laughs> yeah, because say, don't forget the snakes and yeah. lizards and everything as well. All those we'll, to have do. To do,
0: we'll do one in snakes in the summertime, I think, a bit more. Okay, well, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next time.
1: Yeah, take care. Bye-bye,
0: Bye. everybody. Bye.